ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. Deborah Dank grew up in the far west of Queensland in Camerweel, where her dad sang her slim, dusty songs, while her mum gave her a love of books and the discipline of academic learning. But although this was where Deborah grew up, it wasn't her home. Home was across the Northern Territory border and up towards the Gulf of Carpentaria. Deborah is a Gudanji and Wakaya woman. She's an educator, a mother, and a grandmother. And she's now written down the old stories of the Gudanji and the new ones she's made on country with her own family. Her book is We Come With This Place. Hi, Deb. Hi, how are you, Sarah? Tell me about your home. Where is Gudanji country? Gudanji country is, of course, in the most amazing part of Australia. Just speaking it's completely objectively there, Deborah. T- and totally unbiased. <laughs> uh, it's in the Gulf of the Northern Territory and it's it has this beautiful range of open plains, huge, huge, vast plains, and then the gorges and the big rivers. So... Um, you know, when, when we're at home, we think it's the middle of the universe. Others kind of identify it as remote, but of course it isn't for us. Um, it, it's just home. So I'm um, Wakaya Gurenji, and so from from Camerweel all the way back up to towards Borolula, uh, that's that's home it's, and it's beautiful. What are the sounds when you're out there on country? Silence, lots of silence, and then all of this other conversation. As a First Nations person, we talk about the relationship and the kinship that we have with all of the non-human entities across our place. And so there's this, there's this layer of silence that you sit with and then listening through the silences, you can hear the different birds and the the scuffling in the grass and all sorts of sounds, you know, and interspersed with all of that are the smells and the smells are a whole other story around who you are um, in company with. So it's it's a pretty amazing thing. Tell me about the different smells depending on the company that you're with. Ah, well, if you're sitting near a, a a river and there's that smell of rotten fish, of course, the company that you are keeping is not necessarily <laughs> the best kind because it's, you know, there's a crocodile lurking somewhere. So it's it's a good time to move. My family, my dad has been a ringer, or was a ringer uh, for quite a, a bit of his working life. So the smells of cattle are always really familiar and it doesn't take much for that smell to come back into my nose. <laughs> you know, horses, horses have been my, my friends for a very long time. So the the texture of the horses, the skin and all of that sort of stuff and the smells have this whole other story business happening. <laughs> so when you, I mean, you spend a lot of time away from your country in terms of work mm. and, and where you live, when you're mm. back there... Do you feel your body relax into it or what happens to you on the inside once you're back home? <laughs> it's, it's really funny because I'd never, ever thought about it, but a couple of things have made me a lot more conscious of it. I was teaching at, at a university down here and a colleague said to me one day, he says, you've just come from home, haven't you? And I said, how did you know? He said, you walk a different way, you talk a different way and your hair is really wild. <laughs> I thought, I don't have wild hair, but, you know, (laughs) if that's it. Um, And then my son, my youngest child, and my three children are all grown now, and I have two granddaughters, but when my son was uh, about five or six, we'd get to Winton-ish, and he'd say, oh, we've got to change now, haven't we, Mum? We've got to change from speaking Whitefellaway to now we can talk like like us. We can go back to talking like blackfellas again. 
and, you know, if, if we were coming from the Territory back into Queensland, he'd say the opposite. So those two things have made me really aware of, OK, yep, it's, it does cause change. It does. What's the story of the water women founding that part of country? Mm, it's one of the really big uh, dreaming stories that starts up towards Nukaway in the Northern Territory and it's the Murrumbarna um, songline. So those water women, they travelled over toward somewhere maybe close to the Stuart Highway in the Northern Territory down towards Tennant Creek Way and then back up towards Borroloola. But when they get to my place on Gurenji country, they stopped and held ceremony, you know, they held ceremonies all the way along that journey, but they held a ceremony at a place that we call now Garanjini. And it's a really big dreaming story for women. It's a really important site for women. And very, very tragically and very scarily at the moment, that site is not so far from where a number of big miners want to frack. So it's it's really quite worrying at the moment because good Angie women's ability to maintain that contact uh, is being threatened in a very real way, in a very real sense. You spent much of your, your childhood around Camerwheel. What was it mm. like as a as a place to mm. be as a little kid. Camelwheel was always really good. It was a, a, a good, solid community. There were probably maybe about 5,000 people living there when uh, I was growing up. It was a really lovely community. There were issues and there were problems, but there was a, a level of cohesion that was, I think, we probably took for granted. And... Um, a number of years ago, Sarah Stora, um, you know, that amazing country singer, brought out a song talking about the old timers at Camerwheel. And I said to my grandmother, Gran, who is that person that, you know, this song is talking about? And my gran said, oh, you know, they haven't been there that long. They're not old timers. They're just, they're just new chums. They've only been there for about 30 years or so. So it was that kind of community, you know, <laughs> just you had to be there for 100 years to be a local. But, you know, I grew up on these stories about how the market gardeners, you know, the Chinese market gardeners saved almost Camerwheel during the war because... They managed to grow vegetables and apparently my grandma and her her sisters and quite a, a few other people in Camerwheel at that time would dance in the watermelon patch and have all of these amazing things. So, um, yeah, Camerwheel was, was pretty good. You saw some, <laughs> some amazing things in Camerwheel. Tell me about the time the rain was uh, was unusual. Yeah. I don't know if it does anymore. I've not lived in Camerwheel for quite some time, but it was actually quite common for fish to be falling down in the rain and kids would be running around in the rain catching up these, these little perch. And, um, yeah, I didn't realise that it wasn't the thing that <laughs> happened with when it rained and... You know, when I'd left Camerwheel and lived in other places, it, the rain was really quite boring because it was just water. But Camerwheel and fish in the rain was was quite a common um, event, as common as rain was in Camerwheel because you know it didn't happen very often. But what? it sounds um, like something out of a out of a fairy story. Yes, Deborah, and, do you know how that happened? That there was little fish in the rain. Well, there are a number of theories. Some say that the the fingerlings or, or even eggs are sucked up into the cloud system through water spouts, spouts up in the Gulf. Um, because where Camerwheel is, is on the Georgina River and the Georgina sort of the water is it comes down from the Gulf, Burktown Way. So who knows? It just happens, Sarah, <laughs> and it's amazing every time. So as your grandma pointed out to you, this is a place where you still count as a new chum if you've been there for yes, 30 years. Yes. What did your dad tell you about how you fitted in, little mm. Deborah, to this community? Mm. 
It was, I think, one of the one of the more challenging times was my dad and I were walking along the street down at Camerwell. I was probably about six or seven, and I noticed other Aboriginal people were walking along towards us on the same side of the street. And then when when we were probably perhaps 30 metres away from each other, they crossed to the other side of the street, walked down and then crossed back over. And I'd noticed that uh, quite a few times with different people who I knew to be Aboriginal people. And I said to Dad, I said, why are they doing that? You know, why have you had an argument with somebody? And he said, no, he says, that's just what some people do. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, I just let that go. And then a while later, I found out, quite a while later, I found out about these certificates of exemption. And so part of the gaining of a certificate of exemption for Aboriginal people was around agreeing to not have contact with Aboriginal people. If you gained, as an Aboriginal person, if you gained the certificate of exemption, you had to cut all contact with the Aboriginal community because that certificate could be revoked. So those people who were crossing the road had certificates of exemption and they were being and doing what they needed to do to allow them to exist within not just Camerwell, but that certificate entitled people to travel for work. You had to be able to read and write English to apply for one of those certificates. My dad never ever learnt to read or write English. Uh, He never had a certificate of exemption. And eventually, one time then, I eventually said to dad, you know, what's going on? Why? Why do people treat us like this? And he just said, look, it's because you're black, so just get over it and move on. I said, oh, okay. So that worked in my head. It made sense. So, yes. Tell me about the the fight you saw, Deborah, between Mm. two women on the street in Camerwheel. Camerwheel. It was, um, you know, it was, so this is probably in the late 60s and the two grannies, they were amazing women and if you were Aboriginal and if you were allowed to uh, participate in the Aboriginal community, you had grannies all over. And these two grannies were fighting with these fighting sticks. And it was down near the tennis courts at Camoil. And there are a few of us there and we were sitting watching as, you know, as you do. And um, it was really quite when I reflect, it was it was really quite interesting because I felt I felt the energy coming through the earth. You know, you could feel the thudding of these these fighting sticks. I have a fighting stick now that those women had one very similar to what they had, and it's it's made of gidgee wood, and gidgee is a very dense wood. It's a very heavy wood. Um, so just the the energy that it would take to maintain that fight uh, is is pretty startling. I think it was a really interesting interesting experience because we kind of had that separation, but we were so curious as kids. Well, what are they fighting over? And um, you know, it was kind of it was about somebody taking the wrong food at the wrong time. But at the same time, I think there was a, sub, a subtext going on that as kids we, we didn't quite get. So they're, um, they're heavy fighting sticks. Were the, those women been hurting one another? Uh, yes, uh, uh, I think absolutely. But the thing is with traditional fighting, there are a whole lot of laws and rules around the right way to fight. Uh, so they would have been following those rules and laws, absolutely. So mm. more like uh, something you might see in karate rather than yes. like a pub fight. It's, yes. it's almost choreographed. Absolutely choreographed because, you know, they would take turns in swinging that stick and they would 
hit the other woman, you know, one would hit the other woman in a particular area of her arm um, and there was not any attempt to hit the head or the legs or anything else. Um, so choreographed, absolutely. And yes, not a not a pub fight. And you've got one of these sticks, you say. Yes. What do you use it for, Deborah? Oh, you know... Help my books can stand up on the shelf. Okay. I thought you were going to say help sell your books, you know, <laughs> stand behind a customer. Yes, no. No, I, I probably wouldn't have the energy to swing it. It's like, no, it's a, it's a pretty amazing um, piece of equipment. My husband's a martial artist and uh, he he fights with a, a staff and um, when we were younger I would, I would be his sparring buddy and whenever he sort of got a little bit overzealous with that stuff, I would threaten to just go and get my my stick out to show him <laughs> what a real fighting stick was. <laughs> you described this this inclusive community in, in many ways. What was school like in Camerwheel? What kind of education did he get as a young kid? It was, I think it was a really good education. Uh, my mum would pull us out every now and then after she realised that the curriculum had been adapted for Aboriginal students. So my mum went to Camerwell School and she sat for scholarship. She received 100% for mathematics, 100% for English, and in her words, failed abysmally at geography because she received only 85%. That's failure. So, And that was <laughs> failure. So I had that example on one side, and this woman would do everything that she could to get access to books. Um, and then my dad, who didn't read books, who didn't write but was an amazing mechanic, an amazing horseman, amazing dad. And so every now and then mum would pull us out of school. Um, Often it would be when we'd go and live on the station with dad. And so we'd go back into Camerwell and mum would be Mum would be a little bit anxious because she'd say, oh, I wonder what standard you're at. I just hope that you've not dropped. But I was, when I wasn't at Camerwell, I was enrolled at the Brisbane Correspondence School, the uh, pre-distance ed school. And I was always, always ahead because my mum was always such a passionate teacher and mother and all things. And we... We went back into Camerwell one time and this teacher was had just arrived, Terry Maguire, and Mr Maguire, one day he said, okay, we're going to do an art class this afternoon and he handed out blindfolds and I thought, oh, okay, we'll see how this goes and he gave us pieces of charcoal. We all just sort of, you know, picked up bits of charcoal And he says, now put your blindfolds on and close your eyes and listen to this music and draw. And he played Tchaikovsky. That was phenomenally (laughs) different to everything that had happened before uh, at Camerwell. So Camerwell School was a pretty amazing place. My mum's teacher went on to become the Director General of Education. And yeah, he and and my mum had... They were very, very happy to have each other's company in class because they were both nerds from what I can gather. <laughs> so your mum with this, this big academic brain and, and mm. love of books, where would she get her books from? The library. Camille always had a library. And then mum would volunteer to cover the books for Camille's school library. So we would devour the books and in fact, our pantry, our food pantry, is at one stage they had built some new houses at Camerwell and my parents were allocated one of them. And our food pantry was actually used to store the books. And so it was, we'd go to the pantry and take out a book. <laughs> one So, yes. Um, but yeah, I think she'd had. Because mum was 13 when she left school, 
um, and turned 15 a month before I was born. So as a young mum, as an Aboriginal woman, as a woman in a very remote town, she she did some amazing things. She always worked, but mum always worked around uh, the the schedule of her children. And at one stage, mum worked, mum took on night work as the telephonist, which probably explains some of my accent because my mum, you know, she was, she was very young. She had three young children. And sometimes in the quietest time of the night, when she was pretty sure that nobody was going to want to make a phone call, she would have a sleep and I would man the post office, you know. So we practised a lot with me making my voice sound like my mum's voice. And my my mum was taught her uh, skills as a telephonist by Mrs Rowlands, who was the Scottish woman whose husband was an employee of the Postmaster General's office. Uh, so thanks, Mrs Rowland. <laughs> you do sometimes have a, a Scottish inflection, little, little Deborah, Deborah on the phone here. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Mrs Rowlands would, would invite us to her house and she would um, she taught mum and I both to knit and she tried so valiantly to teach me how to play the piano and the organ. And as my dad also discovered, I have not a musical bone in my body. So, Despite her best efforts. <laughs> Despite it all, there was, there's nothing. <laughs> what was your experience of being in the school play at primary school, oh, Deborah? Oh, goodness. So I, um, my, my parents never had a, a son until Danny came along. Danny, who is my mum's uh, cousin's son, who became my little brother for a while. But most of the time, my parents didn't have um, a male child. So I, my dad taught me to, you know, I can make my own horseshoes and I can shoe my own horse. And my dad taught me all of the things that, you know, you really need to know. <laughs> so I can fix a bed for truck and all sorts of things. So while we were in Camerwheel, and it may well have been Mr. Maguire, because he did try hard to introduce the arts and all of those sorts of things, I think. The high school kids wrote a play and they were studying Shakespeare and they needed someone to play the prince, uh, the princess. And kids out of Camerwell at that time were pretty tough kids. You know, we we were all station kids. We were all running madly around it in the bush other times. You know, this was before all of the, the interesting devices and whatnot one has access to now. So nobody wanted to be the princess. And um, I was kind of a bit tallish for my age. And so I got conned maybe bullied into being the princess. My mum was so excited because she thought that it was kind of the civilising of Deborah and um, adjusted this amazingly beautiful dress. One of my mum's sisters was always a fashionista. So I had this beautiful princess dress on and it's only a couple of words, Deborah. It's, that's all. It's no big deal. But I couldn't pronounce, oh, dearie me. I had no, I just had no hope of pronouncing, you know, the sound that I needed to say, oh, dearie me. <laughs> Obviously, it's improved a bit. But um, but what I ended up saying was really quite rude and not something that my mum was prepared to hear. Can you repeat what you said, Deborah? I, I said, oh, dearie me, <laughs> oh, dearie me. <laughs> For a white fellow, that doesn't yeah, sound too bad. That doesn't sound too bad, but um, for those people who are from the Barclay Tablelands, <laughs> they're all in shock right now because it's a, a four-letter word and it starts with F and it ends with K. <laughs> it was a very funny, funny moment because I thought, yes, are you right, Mum, for making me be the princess because nobody at Camerwell wanted it to be a princess ever. <laughs> 
Your dad, mm. in contrast to your mum, wasn't a, a, a book reader in that same way, but had mm. his own intelligence and his own love mm. of storytelling and mm. his own love of music. Tell me about mm. tell me mm. about his feelings for the great Slim Dusty. Oh gosh, you know when Slim Dusty passed away, I got a phone call from my dad, and my dad was absolutely in tears, and he could barely get the words out. <laughs> he said. Have you heard the news, Bob? And I said, what news, Dad? It's Slim. I said, oh, what's happened? Slim has died. And then, and that was it. There were no more words. It was just this sobbing, you know. So um, my dad, uh, when he, when he met my mum, he, yeah, I, I don't know that he had a lot of examples and a lot of um, places to to learn to speak English. So music has always been really, really important to most Aboriginal people in Australia. And um, certainly if you're at a remote place, uh, country music seems often to be the thing. And um, Dad, Dad developed all sorts of great language uh, skills, singing Slim Dusty and... It would, I'd sit there and I'd listen to mum and dad talking about the words of these songs and mum would say, no, you say it like this, it sounds like that, so this is that word. So thank goodness for, for Slim Dusty. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Deb, your dad learned English partly from the songs of Slim Dusty. What language did he grow up speaking? He grew up with Wakaya. So my dad is Gudanji by birth and because of, you know, events that happened in his mother and his grandparents' life, he was born on Wakaya country. So he went through Wakaya ceremonies as a young man and has always been considered to be part of the Wakaya community because of those ceremonies. Uh, so he spoke Wakaya language. What mm. stories would he tell you or did he tell you about his early life, about what had happened to him and, and caused him to end mm. up in Camerwil? One of the things he shared with me was, you know, the, the rape of my grandmother. And it was something that caused him huge pain, very significant trauma for him because he he says that he was about six or seven and they made him, they held him by the shoulders and they said, watch what we're doing to your mother because this is what you and your people are worth. So as you'd imagine, um, it caused huge trauma for my dad. And it's something that he always struggled with. And it it really, really bothers me because I really don't think that it's a story that only exists in my family. Um, it's something I think that is way more common than what we want to admit because we we like to imagine that we're better than that. And it frustrates the life out of me because people kind of constantly say, well, you know, that happened in the past, you need to get over it and move on. But when there's that depth of trauma and when it is not acknowledged by the community that you live in and when it is absolutely denied by the community that you live in, how does one move on from that? It was huge and it continued to be until Dad passed away. So your your father had had a whole lot of trauma in his childhood as shared with other people of his community and he ended up in, in Queensland working mm-hmm. often on stations with his mm-hmm. horsemanship and his, mm-hmm. his knowledge. What was it like spending time with him when he was working on the stations, when you and your yeah. mum and your, your sisters yeah. would go and spend time with him? He was, um, he was a, a really solid character. He, he had 
a lot of integrity. He was amazingly humble. He, I was talking to my one of my daughters yesterday and um, I said, oh, you know, Pop just didn't like anybody who was a skite. And, she, and Raya said, I haven't heard that word since I spoke with Pop, you know, because it was always I don't like people who skite. And I, I think that some of my reticence around talking about the book is because I keep on having my dad's voice in my head, now you're skiting. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm sorry, Dad. Um, but he he was as mad as. He had this amazing sense of humour. And we were breaking in a horse one time and the girth broke and he sort of slid off the back of the horse with the saddle and landed on his feet with the saddle, you know, still sitting in the saddle, <laughs> And he says, oh, gee, better check the girth a bit better next time. And mum and I are having pink kittens because we're thinking, good Lord, he could have killed himself. And he's laughing, you know, and thinking, oh, I should have checked the girth. But my dad, when the Queen came to Australia in the 70s, she came to Mount Isa to see a feature horse at the Mount Isa Rodeo, you know, and this horse was called the Barkley Brute. And the Barkley brute was apparently a brute of a horse and it hadn't been able to be ridden by the cowboys. And so my parents were working on Barkley Station at that stage, which was home of the Barkley brute. And they came out, the rodeo committee came out to uh, the station to pick up the horse, to take, take it into Mount Isa because the Queen was coming and she wanted to see this horse. And um, my dad was the horsebreaker on Barclay and they couldn't find the Barclay brute. And they said, you know, Lyric, where is this horse? And um, what horse are you looking for? And they described it. And they, dad said, oh, oh, he's my camp horse. I broke him in. I didn't realise that he was, you know, the feature horse. Um, so dad had broken in this feature horse and the Queen, of course, then couldn't see how brutish this horse was. Um, but he he loved horses. He couldn't stand um, people being cruel to horses. Had a real affinity. Horses and Bedford trucks. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you spend your time out on the station then? Were you having to do schoolwork or were you, mm. were you able to hang out with him and the horses and the Bedford trucks? Yeah, well, out on Oban Station particularly, Dad was the bore man at that stage and he took care of all the windmills. I was on correspondence lessons and all of the lessons for the week would come in one book. And so you worked your way through one book across a week, then, you know, the next book. So I would do the week's worth of lessons on Monday and the rest of the time I had then with my dad. So I, um, I grew up watching him and helping him build windmills and repair windmills and we built a couple of Bedford trucks together and, you know, when I was seven I was helping him break in horses and helping him break in my own horse. It was an amazing, amazing childhood. How did the other jackaroos relate to you and, and your mum and siblings when you were out on those stations around Camerwell? We were, we were quite um, separate from other people on the station often because if people understand what a cattle station kind of generally looks like there's a the collection of of buildings that constitute the station and there's a, a fence run around that you know to keep keep the cattle out our caravan was on the outside of of that fence and um we were not allowed inside the fence so we had limited contact and my dad liked to keep the separation uh, because he he kind of felt a little bit safer, and he he just wasn't quite sure. I think about who he could trust. Sometimes we'd go into Camerwell, and um, I remember times at the hall at Camerwell when Aboriginal people weren't allowed inside, and I thought that 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 was kind of in the past significantly. But Camerwell had its centenary. And there was a policeman at the gate and I wanted to, I was going to go into the hall to have a look at photographs and he said, no, you can't come in. 
I said, why? And he said, you just can't. And as I was standing there, Mrs. Miller came along. Mrs. Miller, um, her family were one of the storekeepers in town, an amazing woman. And she said, Deborah, how are you? You're coming in to see the photographs. And I said, no, Mrs. Miller, I'm not allowed in. I said, I'm not quite sure why. And she looked at the police officer and she said, why is Deborah not allowed in? And he says, oh, well, you know, she's just not allowed in. And she said, you listen here. There are photographs over half of the wall in there of Deborah's family. She will be allowed in. Now move aside. You know, but for Mrs. Miller coming along saying that, that kind of exclusion and separation is, um, and it still happens in some parts of remote Australia. So it's um, an interesting thing. It's an interesting thing, particularly when you are on what you consider to be home ground. It's really hard. Mm. Your dad got this job out at Oban. What was unusual about the drive out to yeah. that station? What happened? <laughs> so Oban is um, uh, west of Mount Isa. So to get to Oban, we were going through Barkley. You know, it's a really beautiful country. It's quite often dry and we're pulling the caravan along on our way across to Oban. He was really excited about going to Oban because he'd met the manager and he was quite taken with um, Henry Corbett, who was the the manager at Oban. And we were driving along and I was watching out the window and there was this plume of smoke that was really, really strange and kind of like the fish falling from the, the sky. It was a little bit, there was something a bit odd, but I thought, you know, it's it's a fire. As we're going along, it just, it was moving in this really strange way and it was quite a large plume of smoke. And Dad suddenly pulled over and started running around like a mad madman and was putting Mum and my sisters into the, the caravan and wondering what's going on, what's going on, why are we stopping? Because if that's a fire... We're on this really beautiful plain country with all this grass and um, we probably should be driving madly to get out of here. But it was a plague of grasshoppers and the grasshoppers kind of covered <laughs> covered everything. It wasn't funny at the time. It was quite scary. It was a cloud of, cloud of smoke, um, you know, made up of grasshoppers, totally enveloped the car and the caravan. It turned black and... There were these thuds on the outside of the caravan, you know, with grasshoppers and Dad again making a making funny, talking about the headless um, ringer out at Alexandria and playing these mad games just to keep my sisters from being scared of the grasshoppers and my mum. My mum was always a bit more serious than my dad and was always trying to keep him. Um, under control, <laughs> behave yourself, lyric. <laughs> but, yeah, she didn't often succeed. <laughs> and what was the aftermath like when you opened the door oh, of the caravan? It was just awful. It was just globby custard everywhere, you know. We had grasshopper bits and <laughs> all over and, and you know, because we were travelling. I didn't have shoes on. We sort of crunch, crunch when we go back to get in the car and... Yeah, it's the smell, and I swear I can still remember that smell. There's always mad things happening out bush. <laughs> what uh, were the, the couple who who ran that station at Oban, who mm, your dad had met, what were they like to live with? They were pretty amazing people. We were really quite fascinated with Mr and Mrs Corbett, so her name was Beverly, and was she was such a lady, but she was so down to earth and they just saw that we were a family and that we were people. They were really excited for us to be at Oban because they had three sons, each one year older than the three of us. So Sounds like the Brady Bunch. It Deborah. was the Brady Bunch, <laughs> you know, these three little white boys and three little brown girls. It, we, we got on really well together. 
And Mrs Corbett would take us mushrooming. She would take us into the kitchen of the main house and the cook would get so upset because, you know, she really didn't want these little brown kids in her kitchen. And Mrs Corbett would just play music on the radio, the wireless, and would sing and dance us all around the kitchen. Yeah, they were really, really lovely people. Mr Corbett had a a sense of humour very similar to my dad, so they were always laughing and carrying on. But, you know, one time Oban put in a a new crow's nest dam and we thought, "Mm, we should go out swimming. And I don't know why we thought that because Oban is in dry country and I certainly couldn't swim, my sisters couldn't swim. I don't know if the Corbett, Corbett kids could swim, but the the Christmas before, our families had bought us all bikes. So off we went on our bikes and um, we were sinking into the mud. It was really quite a dangerous thing to do and not the, not the best choice. And we heard a car coming and it was Mr Corbett in the Toyota and he was livid. You know, he was just really scared and I think grateful that you know, there were four heads still bobbing above the water. And this was the only time I'd ever seen him angry. And he said, you kids get on those bikes and get your backsides back to the station. And if I catch any of you, you'll know what for. Well, it was the first time that Warren, his eldest son is Warren, it was the first time that Warren and I just totally, totally disregarded our younger brother and sister because we just, you know... (laughs) Sharon and Dixon were somewhere behind us. We did not care. We did not care. We might have figured that, you know, if if Mr Corbett got them first, you know, it would give us a bit more time to get out of there. So, yes. What did your mum get to do there? Your dad was working on the boars. What about your Mm. mum? When when partners worked on stations in those days, the... The husband would go out and be a stockman of some sort or or take care of the boars in Dad's case there and his wife would um, often be the housemaid and so that's what uh, the arrangement was for Mum. Uh, But when Mrs Corbett realised that Mum adored learning and books and all of that, Mrs Corbett said, well, why don't we swap? And again, the... The cook was horrified, but Mrs Corbett said, it's okay, don't worry about the cook. And my mum would supervise lessons for a while. My average mark all the time my mum supervised me was 97%. Did you stay in touch with that family after you left over? Yes, mum and dad kept contact with them. It was a constant kind of friendship. It was one of those really old-fashioned kind of friendships with a a real integrity around the respect. Um, So they were amazing people. You've been married to your husband, Rick, for 40 years or so? 37 years, yes. Where did you first meet one another? Uh, Oh, Mount Isa, of course. Where all the great love stories start. (laughs) They all start, and and not just Mount Isa, but the Irish club (laughs) in Mount Isa. So, you know, it was one of those um, eyes meeting across the smoke-filled disco floor. People still smoked inside in those days, and and that was it. A week week after, um, he asked me to marry him. A week? A week. And I said to Rick, I said, um, you're not allowed to tell my dad because if my dad knows that, you know, we've seen each other three times and I've agreed to marry you, he's, it's not going to be good <laughs> for either of us, but mostly you. <laughs> How different um, were the two of you? He's a white guy. He's a surfer. He was a surfer. I'm Aboriginal. I'm from remote. I'm from the bush. I grew up on horses and and in remote places, dirt and dust and all of that, spinifex, gidgy. Rick grew up on a surfboard on the Gold Coast, so very different, very, very different. Um, but, yeah, it's it's worked. <laughs> you'd you'd yeah. warned him about how your dad might react. How mm. did the first uh, meeting between your future oh, husband and your yes. mum and dad go? Well, you know, my mum... She just knew that the flowers that he came with were for her 
So that was it. My mum thought he was wonderful. Uh, my dad, my dad's not a crazy man. He wasn't fooled at all. <laughs> Rick was the first non-Aboriginal person that we invited into our home who wasn't, you know, somebody that dad was familiar with with work or anything like that. So it was a big deal and my mum made a roast, you know, everybody kind of ate roasts in those days for important events and um, the conversation, you know, the non-verbal conversation that was going on between my, my parents and I was not a good one and at the at the end of the, the night when he left, my dad said, Bob, you know he's a white fella, right? And I thought, I just didn't know how to respond. I thought, oh, really, Dad? <laughs> How'd you know? <laughs> but, yeah, they they worked it out. Their relationship had a few ups and downs, but, um, yeah, they they got on really well. What did your, your daughter say to you, Deborah, that made you think it was time to take your kids out mm. to Gadanti country and let them have time back yeah. home? Yeah, um, I've taught at at Borrelula School quite an, a few times. So we always made these huge trips to um, the Territory and back again because Rick's family are on the Gold Coast and my parents were in Mount Isa and Dad's family were all up at Borrelula. And we'd, we'd done that quite a few times and then we were down here on the Sunshine Coast and um, our eldest daughter said, oh... I don't like those shoes. Um, I love op shopping and I'm the best op shopper. I have the most amazing collection of antique linen that was mostly sourced from various op shops. So I'd bought these shoes, but my daughter said, I don't like those shoes. I want, you know, these labelled shoes that everybody else was wearing at school. You'd got the wrong brand from the op shop, I had your mum. I got the wrong brand from the op <laughs> shop, which was, you know, not not good shopping, mum. And um, I, was, I was quite affronted that my child would say, no, I don't want those, I want these, because, you know, you have to just be grateful for having shoes. And I wondered where I'd gone wrong. Um, and Rick and I sat down because neither of us were impressed and we thought, right, we'll fix her little red wagon. <laughs> and we bought a caravan and um, didn't pay a whole lot of money for it and packed up the kids. I gave them each a plastic tub and said, put into that tub what you cannot live without. Don't worry about putting in anything that needs electricity and don't worry about putting in anything that needs batteries because where we're going, there's no electricity and there are no shops for batteries. So, you know, stick with books and boots. So we arrive on our place and we park under a tree and um, gave the kids fishing lines and I also gave them a jar each with some alfalfa seeds and taught them how to sprout their alfalfa because you're not going to a shop anytime soon. Um, and, yeah, they learnt about being careful about the, the rivers because the crocodiles were there and they learnt all sorts of things. They walked around country with their aunties and their grandparents and they learnt all of those stories and, and the three of them will, will say... What an amazing time that was, that it was the best time of their lives. And, you know, my daughters, who are the mothers of my two granddaughters, they want to take their girls home and have that experience as well. No, it was good. My, my kids are amazing bush people. They can live off country really, really well. <laughs> you and Rick spent uh, time out there on, on country again when mm. you were working on your PhD. Yeah. My cousin's family lived in a house a couple of hundred metres away from where we set up our camp. We took a generator so that uh, I could run the laptop. We would catch majiga overnight and have them for breakfast. That's the freshwater crayfish. I would write. I would do some drawing. Uh, and we would go walking in the cool of the afternoon. 
and we would catch fish for dinner and do it all over again the next day. You're smiling mm. when you talk about that. Oh, it's, it's just a whole other world. It's just you can breathe out there, you know. It's, um, it's a whole other time and it's a whole other space and there's a, a gentleness that's um, not often present in, in the place that I'm living now. I mean, I live at Budrum and it's a beautiful community. It's a wonderful community. Um, it's, a, um, it's a very accepting community, but it's not home in the way that Little River is home and that Garanjini is home. Yeah. What did your son make for you though? So you had a taste of city <laughs> comfort? While you're out there breathing in, breathing out and eating that good fresh fish. See, people think that the Northern Territory is always warm and that's just so not right because it gets quite cold. (laughs) Um, And I can live without most things except books and a hot shower. (laughs) Um, So my son, who is really, really amazing with technology and he takes after my dad, you know, all things mechanical. Carl can deal with it. So he just made me a lovely little device that I could have hot showers with. (laughs) So, you know, we're out in the centre of the universe, 10 hours from Darwin, hour and a half from Borolula on country with this beautiful hot water. Yay. Perfect. You'd sing Slim Dusty as you were soaping under the stars. Slim Dusty and and that's it. And Sarah, the stars are a whole other thing out there on the tablelands particularly. You know, you roll out your swag and the stars are this huge dome over the top of you that is beyond magnificent. It's an absolute privilege to, to sleep under that thing. Well, Deborah, the next best thing to being able to be there is is hearing you talk about it. Thank you so much for sharing some of your stories on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. I really enjoyed chatting today. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. That was my conversation with Deborah Dank from last year. And Deborah's memoir, We Come From This Place, was recently awarded the Book of the Year at the New South Wales Literary Awards. A big congratulations, Deborah, from us at Conversations. And that was the final in our NAIDOC Week Conversations. Thank you to Charlie King and producers Lisa Pellegrino and Sejan Stowe for bringing us stories from Larrakia country. You can listen to all of those, as well as my conversation with Deborah, on our website and, of course, as a podcast. And you can find plenty more NAIDOC stories at the ABC Indigenous website. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.